Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. You're listening to episode 184 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about whether there was a conspiracy in the American government that had advanced knowledge of the Pearl Harbor attack. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, be sure to stick around to the end of the episode as we'll have your feedback on our recent episode on the Greenbrier Ghost. But first, on December 7th, 1941, 80 years ago this week, Japanese forces attacked the U.S. naval base in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, devastating the American Pacific fleet. This led to America entering World War II, but most of the American public had wanted to stay out of the war. And in subsequent years, allegations were made that the U.S. had advanced warning of the Pearl Harbor attack but let it happen anyway. Some have charged that President Franklin Roosevelt even provoked the Japanese attack in an attempt to get around the American public's isolationism. So what's the truth? Did the U.S. government know about the Japanese attack before it happened? Did they let it happen anyway? And was it deliberately provoked? And that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, what do we need to say before we begin? This week, we're doing a crossover episode with another StarQuest podcast called American Catholic History. It's a 15-minute weekly podcast by Tom and Noel Crow. They'll be covering faith-related aspects of Pearl Harbor on their show, and they'll be doing the voice work on this episode of Mysterious World. So after you listen to them here, be sure to check out American Catholic History, which is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, this week's episode is part one of a two-parter. We're going to look at the countdown to Pearl Harbor in this episode and events that preceded it, and then we'll introduce a major character in our story who plays a prominent role in what happened leading up to Pearl Harbor. He's a man that not a lot of people know about, but he's really important to the story. And then next week, we'll talk about what he did and what his involvement in Pearl Harbor was. Jimmy, in today's introduction, we mentioned the idea that the U.S. government either let the Pearl Harbor attack occur or that it even made it occur. We've heard that let it happen, make it happen language before. Yeah, back in episodes 171 and 172 on the September 11th attacks, we discussed the idea that the U.S. government also had this type of involvement in 9-11. Some claim that the government knew about 9-11 in advance, but deliberately let it happen anyway. This is known as the let it happen on purpose theory. And others have claimed that the government in some way caused the 9-11 attacks. This is known as the make it happen on purpose theory. 
As far as the public was concerned, Pearl Harbor, like 9-11, was a sudden, unexpected attack on America. And in both cases, people have wondered what the government knew in advance and what degree of responsibility it had. As a result, both let it happen and make it happen theories developed around Pearl Harbor. Yeah, in episodes 171 and 172, you concluded that the evidence did not support these theories for 9-11, or at least that it didn't support the idea that the very top U.S. officials had this kind of involvement. Does that tell us anything about what you're going to conclude today? No, because these are two different historical situations, and the evidence concerning each has to be evaluated separately. Here on Mysterious World, we've covered a bunch of incidents that involved government wrongdoing, even government wrongdoing that cost innocent people their lives. And so I have no problem saying that uh, people in the U.S. government can do gravely wrong things, uh, even leading to the loss of life. It would be naive to just say, oh, government officials could never do anything like this. And so I have no problem pointing out let it happen or make it happen involvement in Pearl Harbor if that's where the evidence points. Yeah, listeners also may want to go back and listen to episode 113 on the desperate coup that occurred in Japan in 1945 at the end of the war, an event a lot of people don't know about. And they may also wish to go back and listen to episode 146 on the 1934 plan to stage a fascist coup in the United States and subvert the government of President Franklin Roosevelt. Both of those episodes will give listeners a greater sense of what was going on in the world and provide added background to what we're discussing today. But right now, let's set the stage and talk about the events that led up to Pearl Harbor. What can you tell us? World War II got kind of a rolling start. Uh, We often think of it as beginning on September 1st, 1939, when Germany invaded Poland, prompting the British and French to declare war on Germany. However, there were multiple conflicts involving the other Axis powers, Italy and Japan, that were already underway, and some historians use these to date the beginning of the war. For example, in 1935, Italy invaded Ethiopia, or Abyssinia, as it was often called. Also, China had, or Japan had invaded China in 1937, and it had invaded Manchuria as far back as 1931. So World War II began in stages, with Italy pursuing an expansionist policy in Africa and Japan pursuing an expansionist policy in Asia, even before Germany began pursuing one in Europe. The position of the Soviet Union with respect to the Axis powers was complex. What was going on with it at the time? Well, on the one hand, the Soviet Union did not get along with Japan at all. Uh, The two nations had fought the Russo-Japanese War back in 1904 and 1905, and the Japanese kicked Soviet butt. So the Soviets viewed an expansionist Japan as a real threat on their eastern flank. Then, in 1939, the two nations got into conflict again, this time over a border dispute between Mongolia, which was a communist satellite allied with the Soviet Union, and Manchukuo, a puppet state that Japan had set up after it conquered Manchuria. With a big war in Europe on the horizon, Russia didn't want to be fighting a war on two fronts, uh, both its Western European side and its Eastern Asian side. So Stalin did two things to prevent this. First, in August 1939, he endorsed the Molotov 
uh, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, which was a non-aggression agreement between Germany and the Soviet Union. So they promised not to attack each other and instead carve up territories in Eastern Europe between them. Also, second, in September of 1939, the Russians signed a ceasefire with Japan, ending the conflict in Asia. And what about the position of the United States at the time? After the United States had participated in World War One, a lot of people thought that we really shouldn't get into another such conflict. They were opposed to that. European powers had been fighting each other for centuries, and a lot of people felt it really wasn't our battle, and they needed to work out their disputes themselves. The Encyclopedia Britannica states... Congress and much of the American public continued to favor neutrality, convinced that their country's participation in World War I had been a grave mistake. Americans supported a series of neutrality laws enacted in the 1930s to prevent a repetition of the pre-1917 events that drew the United States into the fighting. So we actually had bound ourselves by law to remain neutral to stop us from getting into another conflict like World War I. It was so bad. Also, the U.S. was reeling from the Great Depression that dominated the 1930s. So there were lots of problems at home to deal with. And people did not want to get involved in another massive bloody war when the nation was hurting so much already. But not everybody agreed. There were people who were very concerned about the situation in Europe, and one of them was the president, who at the time was Franklin Delano Roosevelt, or FDR, as he was called. Did Roosevelt want to get the U.S. into the war? That's one of the key questions in this mystery. Uh, but certainly prior to the Pearl Harbor attack, he said that he did not. Still, he was performing actions, which we'll discuss, that certainly make it look like he was getting the nation ready for war. And many were suspicious that that's exactly what he was doing. So suspicious that it became an election issue in the 1940 presidential election. At the time, FDR was running for a third term in office, which is something no president had ever done before. Previously, going back to George Washington, no president had served more than two four-year terms before voluntarily retiring from office. But at the time, there was no law prohibiting this. A president could run for as many terms in office as he liked, just like a congressman or a senator can. There is a law now. After Roosevelt ended up serving four terms, the public was convinced that this was too much, that no president should remain in power for that long. So in 1947, just two years after Roosevelt died, Congress passed. And then in 1951, the states ratified the 22nd Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which says that no person can be elected to the office of president more than twice. But even though that wasn't the rule in 1940, there were a lot of people wanting to make a change. In September, Roosevelt's opponent, Wendell Wilkie, was polling just 0.2%, two-tenths of a percentage point, behind Roosevelt, although at that point, a lot of people still hadn't made up their minds. In late October, just a couple of weeks before the election, nearly everyone had made up their minds, and Wilkie was still within 4% of Roosevelt, which meant he was in striking range. And there were growing concerns about whether Roosevelt would take us into the war. Encyclopedia Britannica states, 
During the contest against the Republican nominee, Wendell Wilkie, Roosevelt repeatedly declared his intention to keep America out of war unless it was attacked by a foreign power. Later, in response to Wilkie's warnings that the president's re-election would mean wooden crosses for American boys, who, he said, were already almost on the transports, and an October surge in the polls brought Wilkie to within four percentage points of the president. And as John Coster writes in his book, Operation Snow... While Hitler was bombing London and U-boats were sinking British ships in the Atlantic, Franklin Roosevelt was running for an unprecedented third term as president of the United States, and 80% of Americans polled said they wanted to stay out of war unless the United States were attacked. The Selective Training and Service Act, the first peacetime conscription in American history, was passed in September over the protests of pacifists and conservatives alike. The first 12-month draft notices went out in October. Roosevelt desperately wanted to help Britain, but he also desperately wanted to get reelected. So this was kind of bad timing for the president. 80% of the population wanted to stay out of the war, but they just passed the first peacetime draft in U.S. history. And in October, the month before the election, the first draft notices started hitting young men's mailboxes. That's exactly the kind of thing that could tip the election to Wilkie. So what did Roosevelt do? He decided to try to reassure the public, and on October 30th, a week before the election, he gave a speech in Boston, your hometown, Dom, where he said this. I have said this before, but I shall say it again and again and again. Your boys are not going to be sent into any foreign war. He then repeated this promise in coming days in Brooklyn, New York, and in Buffalo, New York, with radio and newspapers repeating his statements to people all over the country. And it was enough for him to win the election. He ended up winning by 10 percentage points. But the promises he made had an escape clause. He said, your boys are not going to be sent into any foreign wars. But if America was attacked, then it wouldn't be a foreign war anymore. An attack on America would make it our war. And that's exactly what happened a year later. All right. Before we get to our theories about what happened, we do want to stop and take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Dorian K, Matthew W, Sam R, KH, and Brendan. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the Catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. So, Jimmy, what theories are there about the Pearl Harbor attack? First, we need to consider which of three basic theories is true. Did someone in the U.S. government have let it happen on purpose involvement? Did they have make it happen on purpose involvement? Or did it happen without officials purposefully allowing or causing it? 
Second, if someone was involved, who was it? Was it President Roosevelt himself? Was it someone close to FDR in the hierarchy? Or was it someone way down in the food chain? We also need to look at what the motive would have been, and we'll have some final matters to discuss from the faith perspective, depending on what we find. Okay, what can we say about the Pearl Harbor attack from the reason perspective? Let's start with the question of who in the U.S. could have known of or provoked an attack on Pearl Harbor before it occurred. Hypothetically, any number of people in the U.S. government, military, or intelligence services could have had advanced knowledge of the attack and decided to allow it to happen for some reason. The government, military, and intelligence services today are absolutely massive, and while they weren't as big in 1941, they were still quite large, with thousands of people involved. So there's no way I can eliminate the possibility that somebody in the vast apparatus was aware and let it happen on purpose. But that's not really the question people are interested in. If it turned out that some low-level analyst or agent got advanced word of Pearl Harbor and chose to do nothing about it, that would be bad, but the blame would be on one low-level guy, not, not a big, sinister, high-up conspiracy. That's what people really want to know, if higher-ups were involved, the people who had real power and influence. Then let's go right to the top. What about FDR? Why would he want to let or make Pearl Harbor happen? The basic claim is that he wanted to get the U.S. into World War II so that we could help out our European allies like Britain and France. In June of 1940, Britain and France lost the Battle of France. British troops were evacuated under desperate conditions from the beaches at Dunkirk, and France itself fell and was forced to sign an armistice with the Germans later that month. The war was not going well, and there was real doubt about whether the British and others would be able to stop the Nazis and the fascists without American involvement. FDR was very anxious to get the U.S. into the war, but he had promised not to send U.S. boys to fight in a foreign war. So the idea is that he provoked Japan into attacking the U.S. so that it would no longer be a foreign war, or at least he didn't warn the military when he gained advanced knowledge of Pearl Harbor. What kind of evidence do supporters of this view offer? The case begins by pointing out a series of things that FDR did nudging America closer and closer to direct involvement in the war. Encyclopedia Britannica states, Although he was well aware that the public wanted America to stay out of the war, Roosevelt was determined to do all he could to prevent a German victory. Relying on the public's sympathy for Britain and France, he persuaded Congress to revise the 1935 Neutrality Act, which prohibited loans and arms sales to belligerent nations in order to allow the two countries to purchase arms on a cash-and-carry basis, that is, on the condition that they pay immediately in cash and transport the arms themselves. He argued that the revision was the best way both to keep the United States out of the war and to guarantee a British-French victory. So now the legal impediments requiring American neutrality had been weakened, and the cash-and-carry policy was a famous milestone of this era. After the fall of France in 1940, Roosevelt looked for other means to prevent Britain's defeat. 
Raising the specter of a German invasion in the Western Hemisphere, he convinced Congress to enact the first peacetime draft in U.S. history. Although he justified the measure as necessary for national security, some contend that it was not purely defensive. In fact, they argue it was a major step in preparing the United States to enter the war in Europe. About the same time, following negotiations with British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, Roosevelt agreed to transfer 50 World War I-era U.S. destroyers to Britain in exchange for 99-year leases on eight British naval and air bases in the Western Hemisphere. Again, Roosevelt characterized the agreement as a defensive measure, describing it as the most important action in the reinforcement of our national defense since the Louisiana Purchase in 1803. For others, however, the deal decisively ended American neutrality and made U.S. involvement in the war inevitable. In this view, they are in agreement with Churchill, who believed that the exchange set in motion a process that no one could stop. Like the Mississippi, Churchill said, it just keeps rolling along. So U.S. involvement in the war now seemed inevitable, but Roosevelt took additional steps to move us closer. With his re-election in 1940, Roosevelt believed he had a blank check to push the country closer to war, according to some. In a December fireside chat, he reiterated his determination to keep the country out of the fighting, but also emphasized that the best path to this end was through unrestricted aid to Britain, declaring that we must be the great arsenal of democracy. Having won the approval of 80% of his listening audience, he looked for ways to ensure that Britain got the war material that American factories were increasingly able to provide. In response to Churchill's declaration earlier that year that the moment was fast approaching when we, Britain, shall no longer be able to pay cash for shipping and other supplies, Roosevelt proposed the Lend-Lease Program, which authorized the president to provide aid to the British on the condition that after the fighting they would return, in kind, the guns and ships loaned to them. It was, Roosevelt told a press conference, the same as lending a garden hose to a neighbor to help put out a fire that could burn down your house as well as his. In the midst of your neighbor's crisis, you would not ask him for the cost of the hose. Rather, you would lend it to him on the understanding that you would get it back, or it would be replaced if it was destroyed once the fire was doused. Although congressional approval and White House implementation of Lend-Lease made the United States all but a belligerent in the fighting, it proved insufficient to bring the nation directly into the war. The Lend-Lease program was another famous milestone of this era, and it did make us all but a belligerent in that we were now giving war supplies to Britain with no charge at all at the present, but only a promise of repayment maybe someday if they ended up winning. Almost the only thing we weren't doing was sending our own men into combat. But, it's argued, Roosevelt was working on a way to achieve that, too. 
Throughout 1941, according to some, Roosevelt was trying mightily to find a convincing rationale for directly entering the European conflict. After the Nazi attack on the Soviet Union in June and incidents in the North Atlantic between German submarines and two American ships, the freighter Robin Moore and the destroyer Greer, Roosevelt ordered the Navy to escort convoys of American and later Allied ships and to shoot German and Italian warships on sight. And with shoot-on-sight orders, the U.S. had clearly abandoned any pretense of neutrality. You're not neutral in a conflict if you attack a given country's vessels as soon as you see them, without giving them a chance to leave, negotiate, or even surrender. Shoot-on-sight means you've adopted a clearly non-neutral aggressive posture, and that means you're at war despite the formal despite the absence of a formal declaration of war. Despite the existence of an undeclared naval war between Germany and the United States, however, Roosevelt hesitated to ask for a formal declaration because most of the American public still supported neutrality. At this point, according to some, he believed that he could obtain a public consensus in favor of war only if the country were attacked by a foreign power. And so the proposal is that he either maneuvered Japan into attacking us or at least did nothing deliberately when he learned that Japan was about to attack. In later years, this was referred to as the backdoor to war strategy. Roosevelt couldn't get a formal declaration of war and proceed to war by the front door, so he went through the backdoor instead by causing or letting us be attacked. But wait, if Roosevelt caused or let us be attacked by Japan, that would lead to a war in the Pacific rather than Europe. Even if we went to war with Japan, there's no guarantee that we'd end up fighting in Europe and helping the British. Germany could stay out of things and let the Japanese fight the U.S. in the Pacific while it focused on Europe. And even if we did end up fighting Germany, why would FDR want us to divide our forces between two theaters of war? It would be much better to avoid fighting Japan so that we could focus all our focus, all our forces on what was happening in Europe. Fighting both in Europe and in the Pacific would amount to fighting two major wars at once, and no good commander wants that. So it wouldn't make sense for FDR to provoke a war in the Pacific if he wanted to fight a war in Europe. No, it wouldn't. Not unless he tried that and failed. And that's the argument supporters of this view make, that by incrementally giving more and more support to the British, FDR was trying to provoke Germany to attack the U.S. But over the course of 1940 and 1941, the Germans kept refusing to take the bait. No matter how much support FDR gave the British, including U.S. ships escorting their convoys with shoot-on-sight orders for German and Italian vessels, the Axis powers in Europe stubbornly refused to declare war or otherwise commit a provocation that FDR could use at home. So in the end, it's argued that he and his advisors decided to provoke Japan instead. It wasn't a perfect solution, as it would mean fighting a war on two fronts, but at least it would get us into the war. How might critics of this view respond? One response is that it would still be really stupid to do this. I mean, after all, 
nations stage false flag operations all the time where they cause an event and then lie about who is responsible. If FDR wanted to get us into the war in Europe, he could have staged a false flag operation in the Atlantic and then blamed the Germans. In fact, a German U-boat had sunk at the American cargo ship SS Robin Moore in May of 1941. If they'd sunk a military vessel or if Roosevelt had a false flag sinking of a military vessel, even a Navy ship without any sailors on it, that would have been an act of war that he could have used as a pretext. So one response would be that he didn't need the attack on Pearl Harbor and that it would have been stupid to provoke or permit it when there were easier ways to achieve his goal. The counter argument is that Roosevelt did actually have the ability to get a formal declaration of war. This is an additional response, that he actually did have the ability, uh, he had enough votes in Congress to uh, get a declaration of war even before the attack on Pearl Harbor, but he was afraid that if the American people weren't firmly convinced of the need for war, that the war would ultimately fizzle out and do more harm than good. As a result, this view holds, all of the incremental steps that he took should be understood as an attempt to keep us out of the war unless and until the American people were convinced we should go in, because he didn't want to just get a majority vote in Congress that the American people weren't behind. That, plus the fact it would be stupid to fight a war in the Pacific if you didn't have to, is a notable argument in the case against the idea that FDR would have caused or allowed Pearl Harbor deliberately. We'll have more to say about this view next episode. Before we move on, let's clarify something that some listeners may be wondering about. When Pearl Harbor was attacked in 1941, Hawaii was not yet a U.S. state. It didn't become a state until almost 20 years later in 1959, the same year that Alaska had became a state. So how would an attack on Hawaii, which wasn't yet part of the U.S., make this a war involving America rather than one of the foreign wars that FDR promised we wouldn't get into? The fact Hawaii wasn't yet part of the U.S. would take the edge off the situation somewhat. How Hawaii became a state is actually an interesting story in itself involving skullduggery by people in the mainland U.S., and we'll probably discuss it in a future episode. But even though it wasn't a state in 1940... Hawaii was a U.S. territory, and Pearl Harbor was the site of a major U.S. naval base. When the attack occurred, the Japanese absolutely decimated the U.S. Pacific Fleet. And so this attack on U.S. military forces was itself an act of war that the public would understand as an intolerable provocation. The attack on Pearl Harbor is often remembered as a surprise attack that came totally out of the blue with no understanding that it was likely to occur. How accurate is that impression? Nowhere near as accurate as you might think. The fact is there was already war occurring in the region and Japan was involved. In fact, as we heard at the opening of this episode in the opening clip of FDR, the U.S. government and the Japanese Empire were already engaging in negotiations to foster peace. You'll recall that he said at the time of the attack... The United States was at peace with that nation and at the solicitation of Japan 
was still in conversation with its government and its emperor, looking toward the maintenance of peace in the Pacific. So, yeah, there was already warfare happening in the region, and we in Japan had been negotiating to try to calm it down and keep it from expanding. What hostilities had been going on? What were they trying to stop? As far back as 1931, Japan staged a false flag operation to invade Manchuria, so there was a conflict between Japan and China in that area. Japan also shelled the U.S. gunboat Panay, so tensions between Japan and America existed. In 1937 and 1938, the rape of Nanking occurred, so more conflict between Japan and China. In 1939, Japan attacked a city in Hunan, China, and by now the Second Sino-Japanese War was underway, so Japan and China were engaged in a full-scale war. Japan also invaded French Indochina, which in modern terms includes Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. So Japan was not playing well with others at this time. And they needed supplies like minerals, military parts, and oil to fuel their expanding war effort. But those were getting hard to come by because in 1939, the U.S. declined to renew a trade agreement, a trade treaty with Japan, and instituted export control acts against things that Japan wanted for its war effort. They then tried to negotiate with the Dutch to get the supplies from the Dutch East East Indies, meaning modern Indonesia, but those negotiations didn't work out. Meanwhile, back at the barn in June of 1941, the Nazis broke their non-aggression pact with the Soviet Union and attacked Russia in what's known as Operation Barbarossa or Operation Redbeard. The next month, in July 1941, the Japanese were planning to invade the eastern part of the Soviet Union. But in response to Japanese aggression, the U.S. and Britain froze Japanese financial assets and implemented an oil embargo on the nation. So Japan, resource and money shy, dropped its plans to invade the Soviet Union for the moment. Unwilling to give up on its territorial ambitions, such as those in China, but in need of supplies for its expansionism, Japan thus started planning for an additional war. What were they hoping to achieve? Basically, they wanted to... They wanted to seize European colonies in the Pacific. That would let them gain the war resources they needed, like the oil in the Dutch East Indies or Indonesia. And it would leave them in a good position because once they had the colonies, they'd have the resources they'd need. And they'd only have to fight a local defensive war against the Allies, who would be overstretched due to having to project force over vast global distances. And with the Allies also distracted by the war in Europe, where Britain and France, uh, where Britain was still fighting to hold on, the Allies wouldn't be able to make as effective a response. They figured that they could grab the colonies they wanted quick, then wait out the Allies fighting a defensive war until the Allies were ready to negotiate peace with them, which would also allow them to pursue their ambitions in the East Asian mainland, like China and the Eastern Soviet Union. So Japan was already at war 
and needed supplies for its hostilities, and thus people were worried that it would lash out in a new way and try to take those resources by force. Hence, there had been negotiations, like the ones FDR mentioned, occurring during 1941 to try to contain the situation and foster peace. Did those negotiations have a chance of succeeding? Here's where a new character enters our story. His name was Harry Dexter White, and he was born in 1892 in Boston. In 1941, he was working as a senior official in the U.S. Treasury Department, just under the Secretary of the Treasury, Henry Morgenthau, Jr. He thus had one degree of separation from President Roosevelt. The president was advised by his cabinet official, Henry Morgenthau, and Morgenthau was advised by Harry Dexter White. White was an economist and a very smart man. In later years, he would help create the Bretton Woods Agreement, which regulated international finances for decades after the war. And we discussed the Bretton Woods Agreement back in episode 136 on The Great Reset. Harry White also was a key architect of the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, and he was the first U.S. director of the International Monetary Fund. So he was quite a mover and a shaker. And why is he relevant to our story today? Because he was a mole and an agent of influence working on behalf of the Soviet Union's NKVD secret police agency, which was a predecessor to the KGB. And we know that for a fact. We also know that he had a significant role in steering U.S. policy in the direction that led to an attack on Pearl Harbor. And that's what we'll talk about next time. Wow. Okay, before we go on, we do want to thank Tom and Noel Crow of American Catholic History for doing the voice work in today's episode. American Catholic History is a weekly podcast in which Tom and Noel tell us some fascinating part of Catholic history in the U.S. in about 15 minutes. Going all the way back to the 1500s up through today, they tell the stories of people and places, not just the saints, but even ordinary Catholics who've made interesting contributions. You can check out the podcast at sqpn.com slash history or wherever fine podcasts are found. So, Jimmy, while we wait for next week, uh, what further resources can we offer to the listeners and viewers on this topic? We'll have a link to the American Catholic History podcast, so you can check that out. Also, John Coster's book, Operation Snow, uh, an article on the Pearl Harbor Advanced Knowledge Theory, the Encyclopedia Britannica article on the Backdoor to War Theory, and the original video of FDR's speech that we've been hearing from. Excellent. So we mentioned that we have mysterious feedback this week from our Greenbrier ghost episode. But before we get to that, Jimmy, we've got a new way for listeners and viewers to give us their feedback, right? Yeah. So we've started to have more audio feedback and we try to use audio feedback whenever possible. So to make it easier for people, uh, I set up a Google voice number that people can call and leave their audio feedback. If you'd like to uh, send us your feedback, all you have to do is, I mean, you're welcome to send it by email or, you know, by commenting in a forum. But if you'd like to send us audio feedback, it's easier than ever. All you need to do is call 619-738-4515. That's 619 
and we'll have that in the show notes as well. So you can go to our website and get the number there as well. All right. So let's listen to our first bit of audio feedback this week. Hey, Dom and Jimmy. This podcast is awesome. I started listening almost a year ago and have been devouring the old episodes. Jimmy had quickly become my favorite apologist on Catholic Answers. I'm now a proud patron. I wanted to submit audio feedback, as I've heard you've always used that. I think my own voice sounds funny when listening to recordings. I'm sure Jimmy knows why that is, as I've heard and agree with the theory that Jimmy is an all-knowledgeable, interdimensional alien robot with great beard. On this last episode, when you talked about the Greenbrier ghost, at the end you mentioned the possibility of merch. I, too, have been thinking about that and had a couple T-shirt ideas. The first and my favorite shirt idea across the front would read, Aliens, because it's always aliens. And the back, Demons, because it's always demons. With the mysterious world icon so people can know where it comes from and how to find you. The second t-shirt idea came from an episode I was listening to when you said, never underestimate the power of ore. That could go on a shirt, too. I love the podcast, and I'll keep working on sending more people to it. Keep it up. Thank you very much, Riley. Um, and thank you for becoming a patron. It's really important. It helps the show and the network keep going. The reason that our voices sound funny to us when we hear them recorded is because when we're actually speaking, we're getting more information than what goes out into the air and gets recorded on the tape. Because, as you know, uh, voices or sounds are vibrations in air and the vibrations that we make with our vocal track, including our vocal cords and our mouth and so forth, don't uh, just go into the air. They also go into our flesh and our bones in our head. And so those internal vibrations are part of what we experience. They get they make their way being transmitted by flesh and bone to our ears where they supplement the sound of our voice also coming through the air. And so when we're speaking, we're getting two different sources of vibrations, the internal ones traveling from our vocal track and the external ones traveling through the air. Whereas when other people hear us speaking or when our voices are recorded on a, on a device, it only gets the external vibration in the air. It does not pick up the internal vibrations that we also hear. And so that's why our voices sound different in our heads than they do on uh, recorded instruments. Uh, having said that, if you if you listen to yourself enough, you get used to it. I've been doing radio for over 30 years now, and to me now, my recorded voice is no surprise to me. So it doesn't sound funny anymore. I just, I hear myself and oh, that's me. Okay. No big deal. Uh, it, the, the, the interdimensional robot theory you mentioned is interesting. Um, the theory that I've heard more is that I'm a time traveler, uh, that I'm a time Lord. And I've even thought about letting someday the patrons pick my time Lord name. Um, <laughs> but we haven't, uh, haven't done that though. Th thus far. And also, thank you for the merch suggestions. We do have some merch in development, and we'll be letting you know when it comes out. Awesome. Uh, and here's our next bit of audio feedback. Hello, Jimmy and Dom. I am Renix. I'm the one who sent you that alien fan art that I'm really proud of. I was so amazed when you actually mentioned it, and I'm really happy that you did. 
I can't really think of a dragon sighting that you could talk about either, but a video of you and Dom reacting to videos that are on YouTube would be enough for me. I saw this video on YouTube about some weird ghost twin phenomena thing that's rare as far as we know. I know that's probably not the best subject for a 12-year-old girl, but um, I already know about it, and I would like to get your input. You can find a video of it on YouTube. I'm using my dad's computer to record this. Anyway, thank you. My favorite episodes are the Border Patrol Mystery, Wizard Clip, and Exposing FBI Secrets. Keep it up. Thank you very much, Renix. Um, I, I, I'm not surprised that Border Patrol and Wizard Clip would be among your favorite episodes since they both involve ghosts. Interesting that uh, that you would take uh, such an interest in the uh, Citizens Committee to investigate the FBI and their activities back in 1971. But good for you. Knowledge of civics and government history is a good thing. Um, in terms of dragons, I know you're a big fan of dragons, and I don't know... Um, I haven't seen dragon videos, and I'm not really dragon sighting videos on YouTube. I mean, I'm sure I could search for them, but I haven't seen them thus far, and I'm not experienced in doing reaction videos. If Dom and I were to do ones, we'd probably be pretty skeptical, and so it might be a little disappointing. But what I do think we're going to do in the future on Mysterious World is have an episode about dragons because there is stuff to say about dragons and where dragon stories come from. And so we should be looking at them in the future. And I hope that will meet with your approval in terms of the ghost uh, video you mentioned. I didn't I, I don't know how to look it up exactly. You're always welcome to send links in terms of whether individual ghost things are appropriate for a person of a given age. You know, that's a decision for parents to make because different different kids are different. They have different proclivities and different um, uh sensitivity levels and so that's really a decision for parents to make but I'm glad that you're working with your parents like you mentioned you use your dad's computer to record this so that's very good I also liked how you mentioned that this ghostly phenomena whatever it may be is rare as far as we know I love that very good nice qualifier good. yes excellent that's just some critical thinking also uh, I must say dragon episode oh yeah <laughs> I look forward to that. So uh, our next bit of feedback comes from Michael, who left a comment on Facebook, who wrote uh, on the Greenbrier Ghost. What an amazing story. I tend to agree with your conclusions that the husband did murder his wife. I'm just glad that this trial did not set a precedent. Cue the X-Files music. Yeah, well, um, it's interesting. I don't know. To what extent it did or didn't set a precedent? I mean, it's pretty rare to have testimony involving a ghost admitted in court, but uh, there may be some more out there. I don't know. Also, yeah, in there, it, I'm pretty sure it has happened in prior cultures. Um, it's maybe unusual here in America, but if you go back in history, I'm, I would imagine you can find some cases where it does happen. In fact, actually, one of the movies, uh, there's a very famous Akira Kurosawa movie called Rashomon, which involves a crime that's committed in the woods and people's different different people's perspectives on it and one of the people's perspectives is someone who died and so you get ghost testimony in Rashomon. Mm. I wonder if there is US case study case law on 
ghost testimony. This someone, someone who's had access to legal stuff like that, maybe willing to look I'd that up. Love to know. I'd love to cover additional cases of that. Yeah, yeah. Our next feedback comes from Ben in Autumn on Patreon. They wrote, "This was a fascinating episode. Amazing mix of ghost story, whodunit, and courtroom drama. I enjoyed the reenactment segment as well." Now I'm curious if there are other times where ghostly testimony was allowed in court. Yeah, as we said, I'd love to know, too. Uh, If nothing else, it would give me, if there are, and I can get access to decent sources, it would let us do more episodes on a similar theme. Uh, And then Francisco sent an email who wrote, great episode. I was disappointed, though, because I was rooting for Edward Shue to be innocent. Thank you. I uh, I will take that as a compliment in terms of the storytelling, because I tried to tell the story in such a way that we gave him as much benefit of a doubt as possible, in part so that it wouldn't uh, be immediately obvious um, to everybody who the killer was. There were aspects of his story that a defense attorney could use in his favor. And so I looked at those and made sure we mentioned those in telling the story, because, um, even though his, his wife's mother reported the ghost showing up and, and fingering him as the guilty party, you do need to use critical thinking to say, Hey, maybe it could have been someone else. Maybe, the ghost wasn't telling the truth, or maybe there was no ghost, and it was the mother who was making it up. Um, so we needed to, like anybody, give him the benefit of the doubt. But ultimately, I think the evidence does point to him being the killer. Okay. So that was Francisco. This next one is from Francesco on Patreon, who's got two parts. I'll read the first part of the feedback. As usual, I love the episode on the ghost trial, although I think the proper term, at least in pop culture, for the returning Zona would be Revenant, since, if I understand it correctly, she came back not as a mere spirit, but had physical form, at least from what her mother claimed. Of course, in literature, ghosts have been known to be corporeal, such as in some of the stories of the Anglican cleric and scholar M.R. James. Yeah, I've read some of M.R. James's uh, horror fiction, and it's it's worth reading. Um, he, he was an influential early horror author that influenced H.P. Lovecraft. Um, in, and you're right, if Zona returned in a physical body, like her mother said, she would be properly speaking a revenant. But that's a term of art that, you know, wouldn't have been in use in common circles in uh, West Virginia at the time. So ghost, you know, would do. It also would be possible that uh, even though her mother claimed to physically feel Zona's like dress, um, it would be possible for hypothetically for Zona to assume an aerial body like the medieval theologians would say angels and demons can. You know, just a temporary form that then dissolves into the air. Or she could have used uh, telekinetic abilities to create what seemed like a physical form as a way of interacting with the physical world. At least those are hypothetical possibilities. Okay. here's the second part of Francesco's feedback. Uh, Here's a double feedback on the feedback of remote viewing. These days, AI and machine learning is a potent emerging tool. I wonder if the RV community has discussed the use of machine learning and AI to assist them. Since the first episode you did on the topic, I immediately saw the potential of taking the data provided by multiple remote viewers on a particular target and using machine learning to filter through the analytic overlay and thus boost the signal-to-noise ratio. 
Uh, other people have thought similar things. Now, all the way back to the beginning of the Stargate program, there was a recognition that this is just one stream of information. It needs to be integrated with other streams of information, just like any report you get uh, in intelligence. I mean, even if you have a human, let's say I'm an intelligence operative and I have a source in, say, the Kremlin, and my source tells me something, well, that's one stream of information, but it still needs to be checked out against other sources because my agent uh, in the Kremlin could be lying or mistaken. He could have been deceived himself by other people in the Kremlin. So in intelligence work, you never take any one source alone. You want to build up an aggregate. And then there's a question of to what extent can and things like AI and machine learning assist that. And that's a more modern question. They didn't have, you know, those techniques back in the 1970s and 1980s. But it is something that uh, people naturally think about. And I am aware of situations where uh, people in the remote viewing community will try to aggregate data from multiple viewers, um, not necessarily using AI, but even just spreadsheets or things like that or databases. Um, and there's also a question that's still, as far as I'm aware, considered an open question in the remote viewing community, which is to what extent should you try to combine data from different viewers? Um, because there and there have been, I think, some, at least some preliminary experiments trying different protocols because they're given the way this is claimed to work there is the possibility that like what one viewer is seeing if they're a really strong or dominant viewer could pollute what the other viewers are seeing even subconsciously or telepathically and so you may not get better results by increasing the number of viewers depending on who they are and so that's an empirical question that people doing research on remote viewing would need to test and find out when and in what circumstances it's better to have more than one viewer and then how do you combine the data from them and as far as i'm aware that's still a fairly open topic okay uh david wrote on youtube very interesting story thanks jimmy and dom regarding the ghostly apparition being quote in flesh and bone according to the mother how does that hold up with catholic teaching that the resurrection of the body is taught to take place at the end of the world well, the final resurrection to glorified form is indeed something that takes place at the end of the world. And so Zona would not have experienced that, uh, even if she did come back in a physical body. Um, there are, though, temporary resurrections like Lazarus, for example, who returned to a normal state of life uh, and then presumably went on to live a number of additional years before passing on. Um, and Zona doesn't seem to have returned to a normal state of life, but she could have um, returned to something like a normal state of life before passing on uh, before returning to her grave, although I would think it more likely that there's a different explanation. If her mother l did feel uh, Zona, Zona being physically there, you know, touching her dress and so forth, I would think it would either be a um, 
it would either be an aerial body or a telekinetic phenomenon or just her mother's perception, uh, you know, her mother's subconscious filling in the details as she tried to touch the dress. And it was a sensory impression that wasn't objectively based in reality. Um, so I would think those would be possibilities as well, assuming there even was a ghost, of course. Uh, Jeff sent an email. He wrote, thanks for another great show. I'm surprised your links for the Greenbrier ghost did not include Sharon McCrum's novel, The Unquiet Grave, which was based on the story of Zona Heaster's murder. McCrum comes to conclusions similar to yours, supported by a great deal of research in original county records, trial transcripts, and genealogical historical records of the major players. It's the perfect complement to your show. Well, thank you, Jeff. I think uh, my memory is that I think I remember seeing uh, Sharon McCrum's novel uh, when I was looking for books and resources on this, but I didn't read it because I knew it was a novel. And so I knew it would be fictionalized and that would make it harder for me uh, to you know, figure out what was historical and what was invented by the author. And so that would have slowed down my research rather than helping it proceed efficiently, at least if it was a normal novel. I mean, maybe it would have detailed footnotes but tip about where I got this, but typically novels don't have that. Um, also, I tend to I tend not I try not to recommend things that I haven't read thoroughly. Um, sometimes with a nonfiction source, I will include it as a possible resource for listeners, even though I haven't been able to go through it all. Um, you know, I trust readers, I trust listeners of the podcast to use critical thinking when they are going into a re into a resource, um, you know, from whatever perspective. And as you know, we try to recommend resources from different perspectives on topics. Like when we did 9-11, we had pro-truther and anti-truther resources for people to consider. And I trust the listeners to use their critical thinking when they do that. It's a little trickier in the case of novels, because in addition to the factual questions that get involved, um, there are artistic questions you know, some people might think, oh, well, Jimmy Aiken recommended this book. It must be well written. And that's a subjective opinion. Um, and so you never know also what you're going to get in a novel. I mean, this is a husband and wife novel where the wife ends up murdered. There could be some intense and disturbing stuff in that novel. And I wouldn't want to recommend it not having read it thoroughly. So I tend not to recommend works of fiction on the show and especially ones that I haven't read. The next feedback is uh, comes in oh, multiple parts. I, I should say, oh. but, it, you know, uh, listeners can take Jeff's recommendation of the novel and uh, consider whether they would like to get it. Okay. Uh, so, like I said, our next e uh, email is in multiple parts. Also, I'll read them in uh, separately, and you can respond to them. Uh, well, you, actually, this one you can read all together. Oh, okay. All right. So it's it's a it's a lengthy one, but uh, I'll read it all together. Sally sent this email. She said, I lived in Greenbrier County, West Virginia for 28 years before relocating to a warmer climate. I lived in West Virginia for the first 61 years of my life. While living in Lewisburg in Greenbrier County, I was hired as a teacher of the gifted in 1984. I had a number of rural schools located throughout the area. In 1985-86, as I recall, my junior high students from one of my schools completed a research project on Zona Easter Shoe. We did live interviews with relatives of people who were alive at the time of her death and the subsequent trial of Trout Shoe. We went to the house where she was murdered. We went to the courthouse in Lewisburg 
and read the files and looked at court records. We had an elderly gentleman walk us through the woods to where her mother's house stood, where her body was taken after she was killed, and we went to the cemetery. When her body was exhumed, it was taken to a school to be examined, but the school is no longer standing. However, we were able to go to the site where it had once been. We read everything local that had been written at the time of her death to glean whatever we could. After the field trips and research, the kids wrote a script, taped it, queued it with our slides, the technology of our day, and we took it from one school to another, teaching the kids about the story of Zona Shoe. I read that Trout Shoe died in Moundsville, West Virginia, while an inmate at the state prison. It just so happens that was my hometown, where the prison in Potter Cemetery is located. I believe he was buried there. I went there just out of curiosity. The old prison is creepy enough without having a creepy cemetery, too. I retired from Greenbrier County Schools in 2016, and I feel very blessed to have taught and served as their superintendent. It was an amazing ministry. Yes, you'd be surprised what rural schools do. We serve children and make things happen for those without food, clothing, adequate shelter, language barriers, etc. There is real value to living in an area that you can fly so easily under the radar and take care of children and their families in a public school setting. And thank you so much. That's a great story. It's great to hear from someone from West Virginia who had, uh, you know, such an intimate study of the uh, of the mystery that we covered, Sally. And it's great that you were able to do all that with the school kids and uh, coming from a um, coming from Fayetteville, Arkansas. I also went to schools that were um, even though they had some people from town, they also had a lot of rural kids. And so uh, and, you know, we would have school buses that would have routes that would go way out into the country. And actually, I lived on the edge of the country at the time. Um, so I was kind of a country kid. I lived on a dirt road and we would get brought in. And th there are kids who are uh, needy that are helped out uh, by the schools, like with the school uh, lunch and sometimes school breakfast program uh, for some kids. And sometimes kids in the town are helped as well in that way. I remember once when I was uh, seven years old, I was going over to the house of a friend for the first time, and I was going to go over after school, and we were going to like play, and then we we're going to have dinner. And he was all excited because the fact I was a guest that I was coming over for dinner meant that his family got to have meat that night. And that was a bit unexpected to me because meat was not abnormal in my family. It was something we regularly ate with dinner, but his family was uh, down on its luck enough that they could not afford meat except as a special occasion thing, like when a guest came over. Wow. Wow. Amazing. Uh, Brianna. I, 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 th yeah. I then, as a young adult, as a starving grad student, uh, went through my own poverty phase <laughs> where I could not afford cheese. And my mom was once taken aback when I referred to cheese as rich people's food. <laughs> yes, the infamous uh, ramen diet of college students. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Brianna wrote this comment on YouTube. Very interesting that the apparition was allowed in a court of law. While listening to this episode, I couldn't help but think that there's no way any of the ghost evidence would have been seriously entertained had this cap case happened in present times. Another moment I found indicative of this case not being modern was when Mary was being questioned by the defense attorney in her response to him asking if she believed that the scriptures contained the word of God. She responded by saying, yes, sir, I do. Don't you believe it? I think we've come to a point where it's very rare to assume these days 
that anyone would believe it, especially someone in the judicial system. Yeah, and there was uh, skepticism regarding the ghost testimony even in her own day. In fact, it was the defense counsel that introduced it as an attempt to discredit her, um, but it didn't end up discrediting her, or at least not enough to convince the jury. So, um, so it kind of backfired on them to bring that testimony into court. And I can imagine defense attorneys doing something like that today. Uh, you know, if you have someone who says, "Yeah, my daughter's ghost appeared." to me and fingered him. I can imagine skeptical defense attorneys trying to bring that into into the court record to discredit the witness, um, just like they might bring other things in that they thought were evidence of lying or mental illness. And the question would then be up to the jury of what do they think of that? Uh, also, it is interesting to see the yes, I believe in the scriptures, don't you? Uh, you wouldn't find that in as many courts of law today, but I can still imagine there would be places in the country where that kind of exchange could occur. Carl wrote on YouTube, loving all the pipes on Mr. Aiken's shelf. Oh, yeah. So for uh, so for listeners of the audio version of the podcast on one of the bookshelves behind me, I have some of my pipe collection. Uh, that's I don't know, maybe a. Uh, maybe a, a fifth of it. Um, I have a rather extensive pipe collection, but thank you. <laughs> uh, AJ wrote on YouTube, wait until someone breaks the news about what the contents of the foreign movie with the Muppet song has in it. Yeah. So AJ is referring to the Mana Mana song um, that uh, has been done on the Muppets and it's been done in other contexts. And in a previous feedback segment, I mentioned that it came from an Italian film. In fact, it came from a 1968 Italian film whose title gives you enough of a sense of what's in the movie. It's called Sweden, Heaven and Hell. And so, yeah, not a family friendly, friendly film. <laughs> no, no. Uh, JR wrote on YouTube, while the data shows that the spouse isn't the most likely killer, given that of the categories the numbers were divided into, spouse is the only one that points to a single person, usually, and not a group. It does make sense how people think it's likely them. If the murdered had more than 46 friends and acquaintances, then each has a less than 1% probability of being the killer. The stranger category contains every single person the dead person didn't know, and unsolved doesn't prove the spouse didn't do it. So while another group is more likely to be the killer, if one was trying to solve a murder looking at the one person that is 8% likely to be the killer, makes more sense than starting with the many, many people with less than 1% chance of being the killer. And I'd agree with that. You do want to start by looking at the most promising suspect, but you also need to not let that control your vision, because even though the most promising person may have an 8% chance of being the real killer, the most promising person has only an 8% chance of being the real killer. And so you need to rigorously check your confirmation bias rather than, than starting on assuming that it's, that it's this person and then letting the evidence be shaped by your unconscious selection bias to support that theory. Because the truth is, it's 92% likely it's not this person. Very good. Well, thank you, everyone, for your feedback. It was wonderful. Uh, Jimmy, what do we have for Mysterious Headlines this week? We have a, a theme this week for Mysterious Headlines involving space crystals. <laughs> so, yeah, there are crystals in outer space, and sometimes they come here. Dom, you sent me an article about mm -hmm. 
the apparent, the claimed origin of black diamonds here on Earth. Uh, they've done some testing involving um, isotopic testing, you know, to find out is this, does this have the right radioactive isotopes to come from Earth? And kind of no. Um, so black diamonds are rare. And one of the reasons they may be rare is because they're not from here. Uh, they may have arrived in um, in the form of asteroids hitting Earth. And if uh, I mean, you probably want to read the story just to find out about black diamonds themselves, but also the fact they're from outer space, it's claimed is something else to uh, to really ponder. The second we'll have a headline we have is a link to a short video. It's not very long um, on crystal stars, because it turns out that uh, there are stars that are either partly or basically entirely crystals. Uh, what happens in the case of a white dwarf is um, as the star collapses and becomes a white dwarf, it becomes so dense that the electrons surrounding the atoms basically be merge and become one big C. And then as the gravitational pressure increases, the cores of the atoms, the nucleuses, which are positively charged because they have protons along with some neutral neutrons in them, you have these positively charged nucleuses of atoms that want to repel each other, but they can't because like charges repel and they can't fully get away from each other because of the gravity that's holding them together. So their solution is to arrange themselves into a crystal lattice that um, allows for the maximum distance between the positively charged nuclei while still being bound together by gravity. And so this and the because of the composition of um, of white dwarf stars, uh, these tend to be carbon and oxygen atoms that have been produced by the star's fusion process when it was still actively burning nuclear fuel. And so they're actually chemically sometimes similar to diamonds. But in any event, white dwarf stars tend to cool into these crystals. They're still way hot by earthly standards, standards, but they're crystals. And there also are other stars that become uh, at least partially crystalline, including neutron stars, where even the nuclei of atoms get smushed together. So watch this little short video. It's absolutely fascinating. Awesome. Really cool. All right, so that does it for us. We'd love to hear from you. What are your theories about the Pearl Harbor Advanced Knowledge Theory? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, sending a tweet to at mys underscore, underscore world, or by calling 619-738-4515. Jimmy, what's next time we're going to talk about? Next week, we'll look at Harry Dexter White, the Soviet agent of influence, and how he steered U.S. policies that led to the Pearl Harbor attack, and whether he or others in the U.S. government either made Pearl Harbor happen on purpose or let it happen on purpose. And the answer may surprise you. Excellent. Folks, remember to like this episode on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on Facebook or retweet it on Twitter. 
You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Fear Vento Law PLLC, specializing in adult guardianships and conservatorships, probate and estate planning matters, accepting clients throughout Michigan, taking into account your individual health care, financial, and religious needs. Visit fearventolaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O-Law.com. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. Howdy, folks. This is Jimmy Aiken with a special message as we approach the Christmas season. This past year, the StarQuest Network has continued to expand our mission of exploring the intersection of faith and pop culture through our many entertaining and informative programs. Here on Mysterious World, we've recently added video to the podcast, and we need to continue improving it with better cameras, lights, and editing, as well as continuing to produce our weekly look at the fascinating mysteries you enjoy. That's why it's very important that we hear from you this Advent and Christmas, the time when nonprofits receive most of their support for the year. If you're already a supporter of StarQuest, we thank you, and we ask you to consider increasing your support if you're able. If you're not yet a supporter, please become one. Every gift counts. Whatever level of support you can offer, please show your support for SQPN this Christmas, and remember, your gifts may be tax-deductible. To find out more, just go to sqpn.com slash give. That's sqpn.com slash give. May God bless you this Advent, and may you have a blessed Christmas season.